Hi, I'm Michelle Kelly, editor of Cottage Life magazine. I'm delighted to welcome you to the Cottage Life podcast. On this week's episode, we catch up with famed climatologist David Phillips to talk about every Canadian's favorite topic, the weather. Then, we investigate one of the greatest joys of cottage afternoons. And we uncover a cure for a common cottage annoyance, ants in the kitchen. This is the Cottage Life Podcast, where every day is the weekend. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. We don't get many summer weekends in Canada, so we need to embrace every single one of them. That means my family and I get outside no matter what. Whether the sky is gray or the wind off the lake is chilly or even when the mosquitoes are biting. But before we head outside, we need a reliable bug repellent. That's where Off Family Care comes in. It's deep-free and easy to apply, and it repels mosquitoes for up to five hours. Plus, its new formula dries on contact, so it doesn't feel oily or greasy. Try it, and you'll have one more great reason to embrace the outdoors every summer weekend. A red sky at night is a sailor's delight, right? This is an almost nightly refrain at cottages across Canada, and we all seem to believe it. But is it really true? David Phillips, Senior Climatologist for Environment and Climate Change Canada, has spent 54 years studying the weather in our climate, explaining lore such as this to endlessly fascinated Canadians. And I'm one of them. David recently took time to chat with me about the weather, and to perhaps shed some light on what's up with the forecast these days as well. Here is that conversation. Before we get too deep into this topic, which I could also go on about for quite a long time, um, I think that there's something that that I often hear, um, and that's people using the terms weather and climate interchangeably. But they aren't the same thing, are they? No, they they aren't. But people don't necessarily differentiate between weather and and climate. Most meteorologists uh, are weather forecasters. They're looking at today's weather and maybe out to the next 10 days. Uh, or what you see out your window, what's coming down the pipe, that's what the meteorologist is, is most concerned with. On the other hand, climatologists like myself are, are kind of like historians. Uh, so as a historian, we look back over decades of weather, and we often say what the past is a guide to the future. But then we're also futurists. You know, we, we look for months and seasons and decades ahead as to what, what we're going to see in the future. I sometimes think that a kind of a difference is in defining the difference between weather and climate is that we buy clothes because of the climate, but we wear them because of the weather. We spend more money on clothes than any other people in the world, Canadians, because we're weather conscious. So we buy them because of the seasons we have, but we wear them because of the weather. Or or another way of looking at it is climate is like your personality, but weather's like your mood. You know, you, you change your mood often, can be twice or three times a day, but, uh, and that's the weather changes like that. But in terms of who you are, your personality, that's often pretty set and, and that's sort of like the, the climate. But climate is what we expect and weather's what you get. I think there's right. a lot of truth to that. Right, right. Wow. Those are some, um, that makes it very simple when you put it in those terms. So perhaps now I'm going to challenge you with things that aren't so simple. And that is something about weather lore. 
which um, I think is sometimes based in reality and then sometimes takes on a life of its own. So I'm going to start with the one that I referenced in the intro, which is the red sky at night is a sailor's delight. Is it really a sailor's delight to have a red sky at night? <laughs> well, you know, I don't know what would really please a sailor. I guess it would be <laughs> it would be fair weather, you know, not stormy, boisterous weather. So, OK, if that's his uh, his or her delight, then um uh, you know, it, it is, there's a, there's a really a large strand of truth to it. And probably for good reason, Michelle. I mean, this kind of folklore, weather folklore, has been around for, for centuries. To be honest, it's probably right in our latitudes where we live about two-thirds of the time. Hey, that's pretty good. Didn't cost you mm -hmm. anything. And if you can get it right two-thirds of the time, hey, you go for it, you say. Yeah, yeah. I, I think what it does, it assumes a very basic fact, is that in our area of the world, in Canada, for example, the weather generally moves from west to east. We're in the prevailing westerly. So it's uh, we can get easterly winds and that, but generally it's it's sort of west to, to east. So let's take it, let's break it down. Red sky at night. Well, first of all, and this is typically around late afternoon, early evening, you look to the west where the sun is setting, and the fact that you see the sun being kind of red or the sky is kind of red. Well, first of all, Michelle, it tells you there's no cloud between you and the sun. You know, there's no weather coming your way, do you say? And that's the weather you're going to get for tomorrow. So if it's fair and bright and, and just with some red sky, well, hey, that means it's probably fair weather coming your way over the next 24 hours. Now, there's another side to it is that's a red sky in the morning. Sailors take warning. Well, of course, we can look there and we can see that red the sun rising in the east and of course, the what usually follows good weather is foul weather. There's that alteration back and forth. So if you look to the east and you see, oh, the red, you see the sun, and my gosh, the rising, and that's fair weather. Well, gee, coming behind you there is probably some foul weather. And often that, that rays of sun are reflecting off of the lowering, thickening cloud. And of course, that's often the first sign of, uh, of rain. So, hey, I think it, it works well. It's got a history to it, and it works in our particular latitude. Hey, it's, it's a lot of fun and uh, it, it works. Okay, so here's another one. And I, I think that this is something that um, I've always felt to be true as well, but I have no basis in fact. If you can hear a train, it's going to rain. There's, again, a lot of truth to that. Um, and, um, you know, I must say that, you know, here I'm talking about folklore and I work for Environment Canada. It's almost as if it's almost sacrilegious, but I love, <laughs> I, I love folklore. And I think if people are observing the surroundings, that's a good thing, you say. And yes. uh, if they can put it to a little rhyming couplet, a little weather ditty and remember it. And that's how people, our ancestors taught other people about the weather. Two of my favorites that kind of refer to this uh, one that you're bringing up is that sound travels far and wide, a stormy day will be tied. But ah. the, the one I love is this one. When the forest murmurs and the mountain roars, then close your windows and shut your doors. <laughs> <laughs> I love that one too. I feel like that's a really great one to just yes, hello out. You know, but, but certainly back to what you said, the train or the church bells always seem to ring clearer or sharper prior to uh uh, uh, to a rain. Well, we know that sound travels better through um, through water moisture than than dry air. I mean, that's why concert halls are often cooler and moister because the sound is uh, is is better. Um, and and so when we 
when you can imagine a morning when people, and not in the cities, but out in the countryside, and you hear that train coming, you know, uh, it, and if you hear the whistle and sound more and more audible, well, it sometimes what happens is that the, the, the cloud is a little lower. And so the sound waves from the train are not dispersed up into the atmosphere. Uh, they're more ducted along the surface. Uh, and so they come through as sharper and clearer. And, 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 and so therefore, that often is a sign of you're in for some inclement weather and, and possibly a, a, a rain. So uh, um, I, I think that is, again, uh, kind of works. And, and people who have uh, long memories and as their grandparents used to talk to them about that is a sure sign that we're in for some stormy weather. Okay, so I like I like that. Now, now tell me this, uh, and maybe this is trickier. What are some of the things, uh, you know, during your fifty-four years uh, studying the weather, that people have said to you about weather that are just totally wrong? Well, you know, I, I think Michelle, um, for me, I don't mind people telling me, asking me questions that are, you know, embarrassing or or crazy questions about the weather. I mean, they're at least talking about it. They're, they're observing, they're, they're practicing science. I I think there are a few things that I maybe give a a smile or a faraway look when I hear Uh, one that I often hear is that people will say, well, one season will give you a clue as to the next season. I, you know, Michelle, I wish that was right. We'd have this thing figured out. There'd be no, there'd be no errors. But, you know, it, it isn't. One season gives you no clue as to the next season. Now, the only one I would accept is the fact that a long, hard, cold winter with deep frost and lots of snow, it generally means that spring is a little slow to arrive. I think spring mm-hmm. is always reluctant to arrive in Canada. Uh, we are a, a snow cold, uh, snowy country and a cold country, the second coldest in the world and the snowiest in the world. But I, I, I think that sometimes if, if winter is slow to leave, then spring is slower to arrive. But generally, a hot summer does not mean a cold winter or vice versa. Uh, I think that the other one that kind of bothers me a little bit is that people say, well, lightning never strikes twice in the same spot. Oh, oh no, not. Is I mean, if- I did not know that. I have said that myself. Well, it, and it's not true. I mean, it's the opposite. I mean, there's something about your particular location, position, that attracts lightning in the first right. place. Maybe it's a good sign that there's something about that, that it favors it, you say. And, and I've, just, I've, had, I've met farmers who have built dwellings or structures on places where lightning is hit, thinking that it's their safeguarded now. This, is, this won't, won't, won't happen. But it's one that has really stood uh, for a long time. It just no sense. I often say, well, there was a forest ranger in the United States who hit seven times by lightning. I mean, people used to leave his side whenever there was a thunderstorm, <laughs> for probably for good reason, yes. you know, because there was something about him that seemed to, to attract weather. Another one is that people say, is it, um, it's too cold to snow. Not. It, it, you get less snow with very cold. That's why it doesn't snow often high a lot in the Arctic. It snows often. There's a lot of snow in the air. But even in a dry desert, there's moisture in that air. So it just, yeah. you won't get those big 
Paul Bunyan snowfalls when it's uh, and, and often they occur when the temperatures around the uh, uh, the freezing mark. I guess the one that irrit- that does irritate me a bit is the the groundhog story. I mean, my gosh, every right. year on on February the second, uh, media will phone and say, "Well, is winter going to go on for for six more weeks or what have you?" And I say, "Well, look at if the groundhog doesn't see his." Um, uh, it sees his shadow. That means it's bad news that winter is going to go on for six weeks more. But hey, in Canada, if you told me that winter was going to be over by March 21st, I'd take it in a heartbeat every year, do you say? Right. <laughs> I love that. I, I really, I, I every time February comes around and we have that um, groundhog thing, I really think, really, really, is this still happening? <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know what the thing is, I guess that goes back to what you were saying earlier, is that people are interested and they're having fun with yes. it. And, I mean, that's great, too. Um, because I will say, too, um, very often people have more ire for the weather than they do have, you know, regard for it in the way that we're talking about. And something I've heard a lot this summer is that they are getting the weather forecast wrong more often. Personally, I feel like people have always said that, but has forecasting changed at all, given that we are in such a tumultuous period, you know, in, in a crisis period, frankly, for the climate? Now, this year, I think you're right. I mean, certainly in, in eastern Canada, in, in uh, Ontario, Quebec, and the Maritimes, we've seen a lot of, of stormy activities. Not in May. It was really a dry May, but June, July, August were wetter. You often saw in the forecast uh, the risk of thunderstorms, 30%, 40%, 70%. So it was almost like people assumed that it was going to happen. Well, 30%, I don't even carry an umbrella for 30%. Mm-hmm. I mean, it means that there's 70% chance it's not going to be that, do you say? So I think that because it appears in the forecast, people forget the the risk or the probability. They just look like it's a done deal late in the afternoon. Uh, hey, expect a, uh, a rainstorm and you're not going to get it. And they say, well, uh, you know, we, we, we screwed up again. I mean, the, and you bring up the fact that you've always felt that people have felt that way. And you know, you're right. You look back 50 years ago. And what do Canadians think about the the weather forecast, well, they thought they weren't good enough. They thought they should arrive with the predictability of Swiss trains, do you say? They thought that it was vague and it was uncertain and it was wishy-washy. And my gosh, you know, Michelle, I think those observations of Canadians haven't changed. And I think one of the reasons is that we're getting better at what we do. The expectations for weather nowadays is much greater than it was before. When I began my business 150, or 150, 50 years ago, <laughs> it feels like 150 years ago, but 50 years ago, I mean, the, the observation was the people would say, well, it's going to rain tomorrow. Now they want to know, is it going to rain in suburban Toronto after two o'clock? When's it going right. to end and how much rain are you going to get? So right. people expect more from us, you say. And uh, there's a lot more information about the weather in terms of just, you know, tomorrow's forecast, which was what people wanted to know 150 years ago. It's now what's it going to be seven days from now, do you say? So I think some of this, you know, blame on the forecast and and worrying about the forecast is rooted in, you know, climate change and people being very concerned about that. and, And, you know, rightly so. Is it more challenging to forecast the weather because of climate change? You know, I don't think it's um, in terms of the actual day-to-day forecasting. It's a big country. And the first thing you have to do in forecasting the weather is you have to observe it. What are your conditions right now? Because that's really what a forecast is. How are these present conditions going to change over the next hour, two hours, or two days, or or, or, or week, you say? 
And so I think observing the weather is very a big challenge in Canada. We're not just like Honolulu or Arizona. I mean, weather attacks us from every direction. We have four seasons. We have lots of weather and, and extremes of weather. Mm-hmm. But I think that the climate has... First of all, getting back to even how we started our conversation is the fact that I think because climate has really helped us to to almost bring weather and climate together. I think for me, the climate issue has begun to resonate with Canadians because in the past they saw climate as being something that will occur in 30, 50 years. They think I'll be safely dead before it begins to bite deep and hard, you say. Right, right. But now they're seeing, my gosh, the weather out your window, that that uh, flooding rain, that that hurricane, that that drought, that that heat wave, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the forest fires. I mean, that is coming out of our tailpipes and smokestacks. We're responsible for that. And so I think that's good because I think we feel as if, my gosh, maybe we should do something about it. And I think that that, well, it could be climate change. It's where climate change is, is happening, I think, Michelle. And it's a very important point is that it's not just warming the world. It's creating more extreme weather. It's mm-hmm. not weather that's different than what our grandparents had. I mean, if we had, for example, um, my gosh, if we had sandstorms in, in Ottawa and typhoons in Saskatoon, I would say, well, I mean, the weather's upside down. Something strange is happening. But it's the same old weather. What's different about it is it's more extreme. It's right. more frequent. It's out of season, out of place. It's longer lasting. I used to say the best thing about Canadian weather is it hits and runs. Now it sort of stands around and clobbers you like it does in, in more other parts of the world. It's slower. You It rains on Thursday and still raining on Saturday. It's got right. more time to spread its misery. So and I it's think, raining a lot. It's... And it's raining a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's raining heavier because the air is warmer. I mean, one degree warming causes the air to hold 7 to 12 percent more moisture so those little little gushy uh garden variety thunderstorms are now becoming really heavy heavy rainfalls but then also in cities you're seeing more hard surfaces more cement asphalt and building material and so that same rainstorm of the past is producing an instant kind of runoff and systems are not able to handle it so so i think in some ways michelle the weather has changed the climate has changed but more importantly, we have changed. And I think that has created this urgency, this concern, the impactfulness of weather is more important to us now than it was in the past. And I think that's making the climate issue more important. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, it, it's scary, right? Thinking about climate change is scary, but something you just said gives me a bit of hope there, which is that there are several things that are contributing to it, hard surfaces in cities, the right. warming climate. So there are several ways in which we can adapt our behavior and our lifestyles to combat it. And I think we just have to get to it, frankly, as you say, because we are feeling it more directly these days, certainly than we were even five or six years ago. So um, I wanted to end our interview by going back to something that you said in the intro, which I actually had never heard before, that Canadians spend more money on clothing than any other country in the world, which, I mean, I'm contributing to that myself, I'm sure. (laughs) Do you think that that could be part of the reasons why, one of the reasons why Canadians are so fascinated with the weather? Do you think we're more fascinated than people are in other countries? You know, it, it is true in a way that I think we have this fascination. We always have. Um, and it always will be uh, fascinated by weather. I think for several reasons. I mean, 
I think that we, it's not that we're boring that we talk about the weather because, you know, there's nothing you can do about it. All well, that. Talking about the weather is not boring. It isn't. And that's a good point. I mean, it, it could be that all the talking we do doesn't change it, but it prepares us for it. I mean, that's why I think it's so interesting to me with all the wild weather we get. I mean, we get in just an average year, Michelle, we have maybe we're the second most tornado prone country in the world. We are the second coldest temperatures that vary from plus 40 to minus 50. Uh, we are, are also an area that gets hurricanes. And yet, you know, um, it, it's safe in terms of, and because we talk about it so much, it prepares us for it, you say. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that we get fewer, fewer problems because we've experienced so much weather. And when you experience the weather in the many disguises that we do, then I think you've adapted to it. You've learned how to adapt to it. And, and, and in fact, there's more Canadian, my, my bosses help me, hate me to say this, but there's more Canadians that die falling out of bed than die from the weather. And, and it's, 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 it's because we have a good forecasting service, but we're also respectful of the weather as Canadians. We pay attention to it. We can't leave home without getting the weather word, you say. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Dave, for taking the time to chat with us. I love chatting about the weather. I'm a true Canadian, I guess. And uh, you have so much great insight to share. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Michelle, so much for having me aboard. I enjoyed it. In 2017, we asked some of our favorite Canadian writers to tell us about the ways in which they go wild at the cottage. Award-winning journalist Elamine Abdul-Mahmoud chose to focus on something that's become somewhat subversive in these productivity-obsessed times, napping. His essay, Close Your Eyes and Mean It, is read by Pedro Mendez. I quite often forget that the culture of work hasn't always been like it is today that we haven't always been tethered to our phones and therefore our work. But in a relatively new cultural moment, where productivity is encouraged at all times, the most rebellious thing you can do is revolt against your to-do list and reject the idea that you're too busy to do what is simply enjoyable. Now, lots of these rebellious acts are really fun. You can go out for a drive, try an adventurous activity you've never tried, or cook an elaborate meal. But let it be said here and now, the greatest rebellion is, ultimately, sleep. The wildest thing I do at the cottage is sleep. I sleep early, I sleep in late, I nap vigorously. I sleep with wild abandon. I sleep without a shred of guilt. You might even say, I sleep like it's my job. I should say here that I don't own a cottage, but I love spending summer weekends at a friend's cottage, so I may not understand the work involved in cottage ownership, but I benefit from the responsibility-free part of cottage living. Being at my friend's place feels like a magical time when the rules society has built around sleep are suspended, when no one cares when you go to bed or when you nod off in the middle of the day. This sounds insignificant to seasoned nappers, but I actually think this is a radical act and turns the cottage into a hotbed of rebellion. Being part of a generation taught to constantly hustle, to be on email in off hours, to be non-stop curating a personal brand, it feels like we are too often at the whims of professional demands, never out of reach of work's tentacles. 
Even those with work schedules flexible enough to accommodate naps and a full night's rest would never think of allowing themselves such sleep luxuries. That's because we are surrounded by an incessant cult of busyness, fueled in no small part by the breakneck pace of contemporary capitalism. We all know people who wear busy as a badge of honor because it's the only way they can telegraph success. So the act of sleeping at the cottage becomes an act of reimagining your life as though you had agency over it. The idea of sleeping whenever you feel like it doesn't compute in the real world, but at the cottage, it's a normal part of life. It's why there's no mystery or worry when someone at the cottage disappears for a little while. You just know that when the high noon sun hit, they felt the urge to take a nap and decided to give in. And why wouldn't they? Even at a friend's cottage wedding, the entire bridal party, including the bride, took a midday nap because, sure, a wedding can be stressful, but this is the cottage, and you sleep when you want. Burdens be damned. In this place, life slows down. You form a truce with your responsibilities, and the resulting peace is self-permission. It's this quality of the cottage that interests me most, as holy ground for the desires you have but still keep hidden away. Those wants come a-knockin' in cottage season, and your instinct, for once, is to acknowledge them. And if that isn't wild, nothing is. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. Some cottage memories I want to keep forever. Like the proud look on my son's face the first time he hooked a fish. Or keeping him up late so he could see all the stars that we never see back in the city. But if I could forget one thing about the cottage, it would be the swarms of mosquitoes. And that's tough to do when you're covered in itchy reminders of every second you spent in shorts. So, to make sure my family and I remember the good stuff, we never forget to use Off Family Care. It repels mosquitoes for up to five hours, and it goes on as a smooth powder instead of an oily, greasy film. So now I can remember the good stuff and forget the mosquitoes. One of the most popular columns in Cottage Life magazine is Cottage Q&A. While it's been part of the magazine since one of the very first issues, it's had several writers along the way. Since 2009, our senior editor, Jackie Davis, has been responsible for chasing down the answers. And about 70 columns later, she's accumulated an extremely deep well of cottage knowledge. So I turned to Jackie for this week's podcast tip. She tells me that one of the most frequent questions she fields is about ant infestations, particularly in the kitchen. It seems that a lot of cottagers struggle with this problem, finding it equal parts mysterious and insidious. Where are these ants coming from, and why won't they just go away? Jackie reports that while you could look for a nest and get them at their base, that method is time-consuming, and it's pretty difficult. That's because ants will make nests just about anywhere, in the walls, in the ceiling, under the floor, or even outside the cottage. You're better to get bait traps, the kind that cause the ants to bring the poison back to their nests. But you have to make sure that you get the right kind of trap for the ants that you have. Because who knew? Different ants have different food preferences. For example, thief ants, which are very tiny and yellowish-brown in color, 
prefer grease-based food. Or you might have odorous house ants. They're a bit darker in color and they smell pungent when they're crushed. They like a balanced diet, so you should put out both protein-based and sugar-based traps to give them more choice. But the truth is, it can be hard to know for sure what kind of ants you have, so you might just have to keep trying different kinds of traps. And you must clean. A microscopic crumb is an ant-sized meal, so this is key. Otherwise, as Jackie says, enticing the ants with bait is like offering them broccoli instead of a chocolate fountain. By the way, if you have a question for Jackie, please send it on in. She loves a challenge. The more obscure, the better. Email answers at cottagelife.com. That's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe to the Cottage Life podcast for free wherever you get your podcasts. We'll have new episodes every Thursday throughout the summer, just in time for your drive to the lake. This episode is sponsored by our Cottage Life paid subscribers. I want to thank them for making this series possible. For new listeners, I invite you to check out our free email newsletters. Visit cottagelife.com newsletter to sign up. We'd love to hear from you. Post a review or email us at cottagelife.com. To find out more about our magazine, our television shows, and our live events, visit cottagelife.com. This podcast is produced by Catherine Jun and me, Michelle Kelly. I'll see you on the dock.